Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the election and the legal fallout. So, Richard, we are about a month beyond the presidential election now, and it continues to be a source of both legal and political dispute. Although fair to say, I think that there have been no signs of hope for the Trump campaign on the legal side. They've lost virtually every case they brought to court. And just yesterday, you had the president's own attorney general, William Barr, saying there were no signs of fraud in this election sufficient to have materially affected any outcomes. But the president continues to declare that this election was stolen. His team's still filing lawsuits. And now you've got Ted Cruz saying the Supreme Court should take up the issue of the mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania. So break this down for us on both of these axes. As a legal matter, is there any reason for the Trump team to continue pushing on this? And as a political matter, what do you make of the fact that the president is not giving an inch here and is, if anything, ratcheting up the rhetoric? Uh, He's an amazing man. Um, And I don't mean that as a compliment in this particular case. I think that if you start looking at the global picture, the way in which Barr paints it leaves uh, the Trump administration only the tiniest outcome. What he says is something that's quite correct. If you look at this thing globally, uh, it turns out that nobody could come up with any systematic evidence that there has been something that has been done wrong. There was a very sort of indignant editorial, a powerful editorial written in the Wall Street Journal today detailing why was that there was a switch in the votes at night having to do largely with the fact that there were very large in write-in votes in key cities. These votes were not counted before the ballots were done. Uh, they opened up essentially in, after midnight. Uh, they come in about the same ratio as they came in with respect to Hillary Clinton, give or take a couple of points. And so that you cannot sort of assume that there's some dark of the night innuendo as a general matter. And I think that that's pretty powerful stuff. The only way in in which they can do this is to say, look, we're not talking about the general election. We're talking about four or five cities, and we've got some really strong stuff that is garbage in and garbage out. And they have yet to come up with evidence of that particular sort. And so if they're just simply fighting on the general claim and simply giving the same kinds of claims that they've given before, this uh, campaign is effectively over. Uh, They will never get anything to the Supreme Court unless they find a decision which they are able to win below at some other place. There have been rumors uh, a couple of days ago, not so much yesterday, to the effect that the Pennsylvania legislature might decide that it's going to pull back the electors for the Biden people and put in the Trump electors, which would precipitate major litigation, to put it mildly, probably a palace rebellion. That campaign would be utterly hopeless, given the uniform practice of having the electors chosen once and for all, unless there was an extremely powerful finding of fraud that they were prepared to defend in some kind of a civil court. I don't see that happening at this particular point in time. Uh, So I think, in effect, this election is probably over. Uh, The next thing, I guess, is the political content. Uh, Trump is his own worst enemy. That's been true from the beginning. I think it's fair to say that his own out bursts have managed to cost him the election. He is a man who has a passionate following by people who are undeterred by 
all of his malapropisms. In fact, they regard them as signs of his strength, of his independence, of his ability to contempt, uh, to show contempt to the establishment, to thumb his nose at all people, great and powerful, liberal and fashionable. Uh, but what it does is it takes a large number of independents and it turns them all. And so what you see is a vote, which I think could be explained in the following way. Uh, the public in general was not enchanted with the socialist claims of people like AOC. Uh, but on the other hand, they were dismayed by the antics of Donald Trump. And so what happens is you see a shift in seats in the House. Now I think about uh, 13 seats have shifted over. And it may well be that the Democratic majority, when all the final seats are resolved, is going to be under 10. And given the fact that there are deep splits between the conservative Democratic wing, the sort of center-left types um, who are coming back as opposed to the far-left types, I don't think there's any working majority for any serious piece of legislation uh, that Nancy Pelosi, assuming that she's reelected as Speaker, will have in this particular case. And in the Senate, the Republicans were able to hold it pending on what happens in Alabama. Everybody here is wondering about the following effect. You don't have mail ballots for the July, January 5th election. Uh, you do have Trump's rhetoric, uh, but you don't have him on the ticket. Uh, so is he going to help or hurt the particular cause there? I'm not a, close enough to the scene to know what was happened. I would assume that uh, Georgia is still basically red in some way and that uh, the Democrats will get it most one seat, probably not get any, and the Republicans will keep their majority, at which point Biden has a very serious problem. Confirmation of his left-wing nominees, many of whom have been sharply critical of the president, is going to be extremely difficult for him to get through. People have long, long memories in politics, and I think an effort to get anything through by legislation, given the ability of the Senate to block it and the unwillingness of the House to initiate it, is unlikely. So he's going to have to work with key appointments executive orders, and I think that he will find himself fairly constrained on many issues, and I think in general that's a good thing. Uh, I, I treat the um, vote of the election as saying Biden does not have a mandate to do whatever he wants, but Biden will be able to travel in relatively calm waters if he moves and tacks towards the center when it comes to both his actions and his appointments. Whether he will do that is unclear. Um, my fear is, quite simply, that on matters of labor, energy, and environment, he will want to tack towards the left. On certain other things having to do with foreign affairs, I don't think it's clear that he will do that, so it's all up for grabs. But there's a lot of uncertainty going forward in this particular case. But I think the outcome uh, the political battle on the election is, for all intents and purposes, over. Let me take you through some of the other legal issues that are hanging over the transition. Uh, last week, we saw the president issue a pardon for Michael Flynn, his former national security advisor. And there have been lots of reports of potential pardons in the offing for Rudy Giuliani, potentially, for the president's children, potentially and even the prospect of the president pardoning himself. So we've talked before about the constitutional question of whether a president can pardon himself, um, although I'd welcome you giving us a refresher course on that. But I I'm curious about the preemptive nature that's being suggested here. There are suggestions when you read these stories that these pardons would insulate the grantees from any future charges. Is that, is that how a pardon works? Well, a pardon can basically pardon you for past offenses. I, I don't think, in effect, that a pardon under these circumstances could be for uh, all acts that are committed at any point in your life. I, I, I've never seen anybody do that. All the cases in which we've had pardons have been 
pardons for people who've been convicted of offenses and have served time and they're given off the rest of the time or like Michael Flynn, they're just told you don't have to fight anymore. This thing is going to be over. Um, it's going to be very strange to see the president try to pardon his children without indicating what the offenses will be. I don't think he's likely to do that. Uh, with Giuliani, I think it's possibly more likely because certainly somebody on the Democratic side may decide unwisely, in my view, that he should be prosecuted for his rather ambiguous role in connection with the Ukrainian situation, which led to the uh, uh, impeachment motions that were being brought against Donald Trump. Uh, But I think, in effect, that this for the moment at present is talk. Uh, The reason he pardoned Flynn is he thought he was given a raw deal. The reason that this did not generate political outrage is that there were enough people who thought that, in fact, he had gotten a very raw deal. Adam White and I had a discussion of this issue on on our show on a reasonable disagreement, and he was against the pardon, but he said, I think that Flynn was unjustly treated. I said, if you're against the pardon for somebody who deserves a pardon, you're not doing it because of the merits of the case. You're doing it because of long-term political indications and strategies, that kind of talk is not going to give an uproar. And as best I can tell, the reaction to the Flynn pardon has been relatively muted even on the Democratic side. Uh, If it comes closer to the political features and there's no prosecution and no evidence of abuse, I think that Trump will have to pay some kind of a political price. But remember, none of these pardons work against, um, uh, shall we say, uh, state infractions of law. It's only with respect to federal law. Uh, that you get out. Um, I don't think that pardons could take place for Trump from his own tax offenses if any of these happen to go forward. Uh, We'd be in very uncharted territory. As I said to you earlier, uh, there is nothing about the logic of the pardon power that is given to the president, which is complete and absolute in its form, which says that he has any kind of fiduciary duties, that he has to worry about conflicts of interest, that he has to take advice and hearing from somebody else. It's an absolute power. It has always been construed as such. Uh, So I don't think that he would pay a legal price for doing the pardons, but I think that the Republican Party would pay a fairly heavy political price if it were thought that they were behind the kinds of things that Trump might do in order to insulate himself. It's worth remembering uh, that there was a very strong case for pardoning Richard Nixon, even though he had committed crimes on the grounds that you didn't want to have this political spectacle hanging over everybody in a new term. But it's also the case that Gerald Ford really damaged his chance for re-election in 1976 against Jimmy Carter by virtue of the pardon. I think it was if there was one thing you could point to about his term of office that gave rise to a lot of upset and outrage, it was that. And remember, he paid a price for it. So I don't think the Republicans are going to do this. I think they will regard themselves as having to pay a price. Uh, If he were to get the pardon to himself before the Georgia election, it could easily swing that back to the Democrats. And the Republicans are not in a good position if it turns out they don't have the power to block confirmations because Kamala Harris will have that last and decisive vote as vice president over an evenly divided chamber. As the president continues to to deny that there's any legitimacy to the transition, there are things happening within his administration that make clear that a transition is in fact occurring. One of them, the revelation this week that Attorney General Barr has given John Durham, the U.S. attorney who was assigned to investigate the origins of the Trump-Russia probe, 
special counsel status, which makes it much more likely that this probe is going to continue into the Biden administration. So walk us through what the practical effects of that are and what you make of this decision by the attorney general. Well, the whole thing is completely odd from start to finish. That is, the storm report was supposed to come out in June earlier in this year in order to explain what led up to the various decisions that took place once the thing got into the hands of the attorney general and the Department of Justice. And he's had a very long time to do this. He's regarded as an extremely competent and independent prosecutor. And yet what you see is dead silence on this thing. And it's now seven months overdue with no explanation. I suppose the strategy of giving somebody special counsel status is that you would allow him thereafter to continue to work even after um, Barr is no longer the attorney general. The theory is it's kind of like a quasi-independent office. Uh, Whether that will last, uh, given the fact that there's a new attorney general is probably uh, breaking legal ground that we don't know. The question of what he has is not clear. What was odd about this announcement, he didn't say that he needed more time. Uh, when he did this. And it's very hard to believe that he did need more time. Uh, We don't want to have a second Mueller report where you spend two to three years going through something and coming up with nothing. Uh, So I just regard this as essentially a victory for the Democrats, because I think it makes it more likely that a report of this sort will never see the light of day. And if it does see the light of day and it sees it under a Biden administration, the question of what steps should be taken in the event that there are serious revelations of misconduct by prominent Democrats in the run-up to the 2016 election, you could expect, I think, a Biden attorney general office uh, uh, to basically take its doubts and move them in favor of the defendants rather than the um, prosecutors so that if anything is going to be done, it would be relatively light, there'd be gentle plea bargains or something of this sort, rather than a roundhouse right, which might have happened if this thing had come earlier. So I treat this as a kind of a diplomatic surrender at first approximation. I have mixed emotions about this. I think that people who commit serious wrongs are generally to be prosecuted, but I'm also very much of the view Uh, that disappointed presidential candidates should not be put through the political process of a prosecution and the like. It makes things seem too much like a banana republic. And so I would not have wanted to see uh, Hillary Clinton prosecuted, even though there was lots that she did was highly questionable. I don't think losing presidential candidates should be subject to that. They paid a political price and that's enough. And the ongoing agitation, um, just as it would have been with Richard Nixon, is too high a price to pay. So I would hope that Biden would essentially throw down the olive leaf, make sure that none of these people get prosecuted, publish his own reports on their irregularities if he's so inclined to do so, um, but to stay away from the criminal side. Andrew Weissman wrote something in which he took the opposite position, and he was, of course, on the Mueller staff, and he says the president should not be above the law, but my view is the president is not above the law, uh, but that when you're dealing with these kinds of cases, there are really complicated political implications that have to be taken into account, and for the most part, regardless of what party is in or out, uh, you don't want to see criminal prosecutions against the president or his chief advisors after they leave office. Final question that I'll ask you, Richard, the people who are critical of the way the president has been behaving during this time can look at the same set of facts and reach two very different sets of conclusions here. The first more alarmed response is to say you've got the president of the United States challenging the outcome of a race, the verdict of which is unambiguous, senior people in the government either explicitly supporting him on that front or at least refusing to rebuke him, 
state legislators being called to the White House, presumably an attempt to get them to change the vote certification in their states. And they say this might not be a coup, but it's within hailing distance of it. The second more sanguine reading is, you know what, it's especially bad theater of a kind that this president excels at. But America's institutions are durable, and the president can hold all the press conferences and fire off all the tweets that he wants. But the fact remains that come noon on January 20th, he's still going to have to find a new place to live. There is no prospect that he is actually going to hold on to power, so there's nothing much to worry about here. We've just got to grit our teeth and get through the next six weeks or so. Where do you fall on that continuum? I I think clearly the second position is correct. Uh, The president has been characterized by a bark that's worse than his bright. The number of times that people have accused him of subverting democracy by abusing political process and so forth is very, very large. The uh, call that Trump is Hitler has taken place so many times that you can't even count them. Uh, On the other hand, when you start looking at what happened, Either his own administration stops him or he turns out to basically think that the theater is important, but the action is not. And so he has never engaged in the crazy kinds of actions that one would worry about him thus far. One of the things I keep asking myself is, can we think of a political prosecution that the Trump administration has undertaken, um, which would deserve the kind of bipartisan rebuke? Uh, Anything close to what happened with respect to Flynn, anything that's close to what happened to Kavanaugh, anything that's close to happen to what Trump himself with what I regarded as a very weak impeachment case. I can't think of anything he's done. Uh, But if you recall, as early as January of 2017, I basically said I'd hope he'd resign. Uh, Why resignation? So that you could still keep a Republican in office and have some degree of sensible policies. But why do you want him out of there? Because his personal voice is such an enormous liability that what he does is he taints every good cause of which he is a part. And, And that's, of course, is the greatest problem that he has had. Even in things like COVID, uh, the man manages to state dumb things, even though the things that he's done, like promoting the vaccine and giving guaranteed contracts of purchase, were really quite sound. He manages to become the fall guy for large numbers of stupidities that were committed by governors in the way in which they ran their own states. And why is it? Because he always cheerleads himself, pats himself on the back, announced that he's turned the corner, solved the crisis, and so forth. And the statements are demonstrably false, and he doesn't back off of them. It's not that he does anything different because of them, um, but the president has the fatal kind of defect. He'd rather be dumb and in the limelight than be off on the side and have no attention paid to him one way or another. And if you really want to be a president, you have to only go on stage and take center stage when there's nobody who can substitute for you. You don't put yourself on the stage to engage in all these kinds of antics. He's his own worst enemy. If he had behaved in any way that sort of met with sort of standard norms, he would have kept his entire base. He would have won a large number of independents, and he certainly would have won re-election even with COVID. And of course, if there had been no COVID and there had been good decorum, he would have won 55% of the vote in my judgment. But uh, he's his own worst enemy. Everybody has told him that. Uh, He's essentially incorrigible, and he's going to leave, and all he's going to do is to reconfirm the worst impressions that people had of him as a political actor and as a human being. I wish 
wish he would be quiet and go quietly into the dust at this point in time because he hasn't been able to produce the haymaker, the roundhouse punch that would give any credibility to the claims of fraud that he has. The doors are closing. The Democrats are formally against him and abusive about him. The Republicans are trying to fall away. It's much more important that the Republicans be coherent about future policies than they have to spend their time uh, defending or attacking a president whose own antics in some cases just go too far over the top. I mean, he had a legitimate shot at some of this stuff. The evidence hasn't panned out. Um, He didn't do a very good job in organizing and presenting his campaign. It's time for this thing to stop, unless I'm missing something that's so enormous. And when you're already one month after an election and you're within two weeks of certification time and so forth, uh, the chances of pulling off a Hail Mary full of grace roundhouse punch are sufficiently negligible. And given the ineptitude of the Trump team on this issue, I think we're better off trying to proceed with an orderly transition rather than trying to relitigate the election or trying to run yet another retrospective on all the misdeeds of the Trump administration. Um, He did a lot of good. He's going to be an important president for the achievements that he made. He's going to only diminish his further legacy if he goes out in this grudging and rather ungrateful fashion. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, at definingideas at hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. And if you enjoy the show, please rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.